All right, I'll be reading uh, Acts 5, 12 through 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and, filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they, they entered the temple at the daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to not teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Jesus the Galilean rose up in the days of the, of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them to not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left to the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. All right, kids, since we're doing a family service, you each have a packet uh, that's handed out to you. And on the first two pages of the packet are some pictures and the story that Riley just read. So you, if you didn't catch what Riley read, you can read or you can help somebody next to you quietly understand the story that Riley just read. And then on the last page are things that are two little worksheets that are related to the story. And there is a, by popular request, there's a decoder on the bottom of one of them. So enjoy that, help each other. And then in the back, there's puzzles and things if you need them.
All right, I'm going to quickly pray again here. God, I just pray that um, as I speak today that we would be encouraged by this message. God, that your presence would be more real than ever to us. Um, that the light and love of Jesus would motivate us and fuel us for everything we do and that it would be transforming to us. Bless me as I, as I share. Help us to meditate as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, well, my kids at least are really into this show called Bluey. If anyone's familiar with Bluey, Bluey's great. Bluey is an awesome show. Here's the deal with Bluey. Actually, maybe I'll see. Does anyone want to describe Bluey? Does any of my kids want to describe Bluey? What happens in Bluey, Ezra? Um, so, like, this, uh, you know, Jasmine, Bluey does all this funny stuff. Mm-hmm. So, Bluey does all sorts of funny stuff. What else happens? Anything else that you want to share? Amelia. His parents say yes to an awful lot of things. A scary amount of things are said yes to. <clears throat> um, the thing that marks Bluey is that there is this sort of like infectious enthusiasm for life. That always in every show, the, the adults like he and Ha for just a moment at the beginning when some outrageous request or game or playful um, event is described by the kids and they go, can we do tickle crabs? Right? And they go, ah, oh, well, Bluey, we're, we're just about to get to school. And then he goes, well, okay. And then soon enough, the dad has fallen over and he's succumbing to the tickle crabs. The point of the story that it's trying to make for like this age of millennial and Gen X age adults is that this infectious enthusiasm for life can overcome the obligations, the sort of death energy, the constriction, and the things that keep us from experiencing joy. And so what happens is the parents in every episode eventually succumb to joy, imagination, and the play of the kids doing outrageous things for the sake of fun and for the sake of saying yes and experiencing what it's like to be a kid again. At the end of every Bluey episode, there's always a sense of yes triumphing over no. Joy triumphing over fear. Imagination and curiosity triumphing over our rigid adult minds. And at the end of every episode, I always feel like a little bit guilty that I ought to have more fun. And I think that's okay. I think there is a guilt that is okay, that convicts us to say, where am I wrong in how I'm living my life? Where have I succumbed to the pressures around me and I'm not actually serving the thing that life is really about? And so I think what Bluey does really well is it gives us this extreme concentrated illustration to make a point. To make a point that two working adults, and in this case, two blue healer Australian dogs, can and will change. And it's just so in your face, and it's so clear, and the joy is so loud and so obvious, and it's so obviously good. 
So in this story in Acts, what we have is we have also a development that's happening through the book of Acts from chapter one to chapter five that is going from like a nuance, kind of making this point in little piecemeal ways, and it's getting louder and louder. The point that it's making is harder and harder to ignore, not unlike Bluey where you can't walk away from one of these episodes and acts now, not feeling maybe some guilt, some conviction, and some sense that joy is louder than fear, that life is louder than death. So what's the basic idea of this story? And I'm doing this for you kids out here. What is the, what we would call in film the log line? Here's what happens in the story. 12 disciples are thrown in jail. Not just Peter and John overnight. 12 disciples, the apostles, the leaders of the church are thrown in the movement. The people who run the movement are thrown in jail for following Jesus and living as a church. And God himself sends an angel to break them out of jail. This is a jailbreak story. And he makes a fool even out of the jail guards. The jail guards are like, what? Who is this? Where'd he go? I missed him. And then we have bad guys. The bad guys are the temple priests. They end up rounding up these disciples. They're at it again. And they, and they are trying to shut down these people who can't help but teach the good way of Jesus. I mean, as soon as the disciples get out of jail, where are they found? They're found at dawn at the temple teaching again. They just don't learn. And so in some ways, what's happening is just like I'm right up in front of you right now teaching. Imagine if a bunch of, of police or something came in and grabbed me and took me to prison. That's what's happening in this story. They're not harming anybody. They're not doing anything wrong. They're simply teaching the gospel. And the powers and the authorities in that society are saying no. We don't want that, that threatens us. And so they get arrested for it, they get questioned, and they get like really beaten up. They are like flogged at the end of the story, which means they're just beaten over their backs. And what does it say at the very end? I mean, this is powerful. It says, and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Life, a life louder than death. If I had to ask one of you kids, what would you call the priests? What are they acting like besides bad guys? What is one thing that these priests are acting like in the story? Sour grapes. Sour grapes. I love it. <laughs> They're sour grapes. I thought they, maybe you'd call them bullies, right? And what are the disciples acting like in the story? It's, it's an easy one. It's your, it's your go-to answer. They're acting like Jesus, right? The, the disciples are acting like Jesus and these priests are acting like unfair bullies. So we've gone, let's just chart out and ask what we've gone through. We've gone to disciples that are like tepid and lukewarm, meaning that they're kind of like, nah, they're a little bit wimpy, right? To disciples that have become red hot, 
for Jesus. Pentecost, fire from heaven. So that's one development we've seen in the story. We've seen that a denier, Peter, who denies Jesus three times, has become a proclaimer, somebody who can't stop talking about Jesus. We've seen that the healing effect of the church is growing. What happened in the last time you guys were down here, there was one lame beggar at the church who was healed, right? And in this story, we begin to see that droves of people are coming to the disciples for healing. The healing ministry is growing. And this movement is also growing as a healing movement, not just physically, but spiritually. Early political leaders have begun to call them the way, and they are admired for doing good work for the poor and the most marginalized in the city. They're admired by the city. They're noticed. They're doing things in such a way that are noticed by others, and they're admired. And it's all because of this reforming rabbi named Jesus who made some really radical claims, but seemed to be able to back them up and lived with the deepest sense of integrity. This guy was spotless. You couldn't get anything on him. There was no hypocrisy. In other words, he practiced what he preached. And then we notice in this story that a conflict is arising. We notice that first, Peter and John are in prison. Now all the apostles are behind bars. We notice that it goes from like a private one night kind of holding chamber to a public jail. I'm sure those are very different things in the times of the Romans. We have opposition from a small group of kind of the, the, the mafia family of the high priests to the council and all the senate of the people of Israel is what it says. This is, this is a tribunal now. This is a full-on, uh, the, the forces are being brought to bear on this movement. And we have a growing anger that can't be contained by the bad guys, right? They, uncertainty follows the release of Peter and John, but it's turned to enragement at this point that leads them to punish and flog. So we have a development from like a catch and release to just a full-on beatdown. The temple Jews, the people that aren't letting go of their power in this story, are living a death-facing lifestyle. Okay? This is particularly underscored by the fact that these are Sadducees, and anyone listening to this at Luke's time would have known that Sadducees don't even believe in the afterlife, right? So there is just a refusal to believe in life triumphing over death. And it goes down to the very core and the behaviors of what they do. And that's an important point that I'm gonna to make today. That if we believe in the life eternal versus a life facing death, we will fundamentally be enabled to live in a different way. So for this group of Sadducees, this death energy, this impending sense of ending and smallness and finiteness and limits is the loudest thing in their life. And it's loud because it's totally unavoidable. It's final. Do we live like our death is final, unavoidable? And as we approach it, does it become louder and louder ringing in our ears? If so, perhaps we should pay attention to the Sadducees in the story. Might it be that we would begin acting like them? 
We can say in the year 2021 that we've had people on the issue of death for thousands of years. They're on it. They're trying to solve that one. We've been on that one for a long time. And although we've certainly made some strides, we have increased lifespan, we have better health, death is still a final end to life, it would seem, right? If we just look at what we know, apart from the gospel, we would say it's still coming for every single person. And so if we're not careful, we can say that we're a Christian, but if we're not living out of the faith of an eternal life, we are living a death facing life. We're always facing that death and it's barreling at us. And what happens when we do that? We become preoccupied with our limits. We start to have faith in my muscles or my brain. We start to have faith in everything about myself rather than faith in God. Because we've pinned everything on self-improvement. This life is all there is. We live a life where we are subconsciously daily racing a clock. We get upset when we're late. We get upset when that person cuts in front of us. We get upset when we mess up and do something really inefficiently. We constantly feel that we're racing a clock. When we live a death-facing lifestyle, we are comparing ourselves to others because the idea is whoever gets the farthest at the point of death is the winner, is better, has done life in a better way deserves more is, more, is more worthy to whatever will come. And that creates a deep sense of anxiety and fear. The other thing is if we have a death-facing lifestyle, we have an identity that is given to us by other people. We feel like we are who people say we are. So if people say, to us or think of us or we seem to think they think of us i'm always screwing up right or this person's such a disappointment we begin to live as if that's who we are because we can only measure who we really are in light of other people and society if we live outside of an external acknowledgement of a god a jesus who is acknowledging that we are worthy and enough we will succumb to the, the, the ideas and the culture of a death-facing lifestyle. We begin to evaluate everything we do based on what other people are thinking and saying of us, recommending, going after. How much are we looking around, paying attention and getting our cues for living from people that are living a death-facing lifestyle, that death is louder in their ears than life? And how destructive might that be to our witness that's what this story is saying. The Jesus followers are people living a life-facing lifestyle. Notice how radical they act. The only way that they could act this way is if they are sure in their faith, in an eternal life, and they're sure of their identity in Christ. That what happens to them, that what they accomplish, that how well they do at it does not determine how good of a person they are, but they are part of the will of God being carried out in the world and they will do it no matter what. No matter who's there to congratulate them, they will follow the process. And that faith we find has no limits. That faith is a faith in God and Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. 
And we find that these people are giving up on the rat race. Verses 12 through 16 show us a community that has given up. They've said, that idea is bankrupt. It literally doesn't work. That will not bring me happiness. So I'm opting out of the rat race. They are a community then that is filled with inner peace. The fullness of the Holy Spirit comes with a sense of deep inner peace. We've seen that all throughout Acts up to this point. It's a compelling peace. It's a person that's unfazed by what happens to them. It's a person who's unfazed of problems and speed bumps and roadblocks and things going sideways. It doesn't change anything about them or about the mission of their life. What a profound community. It's a people known by love and forgiveness and grace. Because if God says it about me, it's true about you. If God's mission is for me, it can also be for you. This is an open door policy. If you are willing and ready to get up again and try again, I will forgive you. I will give you grace. I will believe in the power of the Spirit to transform your life. And we will together share an identity given by Christ, which in its shared community is called the church. And then we can say, though this person has called me, has told me I failed, I am not a failure. Though this person has said, I'm a screw up, I know that I'm not. Though I don't even do what I want to get done, though my day is wanting and I go to bed going, man, I wish there were 10 more hours in the day. God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Tomorrow is another day. And so in short, we can then say, I am a child of God. So what I'm summarizing is, in effect, what the angel from prison who jailbreaks Peter out for a purpose. It's the purpose that 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 angel gives to Peter. And that's found in verse 20 here. It says 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life doesn't mean this life, right? This, this limited, what you can see, the life you were living before Christ. No, this life. There's a capital L in my translation, and I underlined and I circled that, and I go, that means something. This, this is talking about life, the life, the designed life, the intended life given at the Garden of Eden before the curse the way we were imaged and made in the image of God to live on this earth. Go and speak to the people all of the words of that. Out of death, bring life. So in this world now, you have a people who have found Jesus and none of the externals of their life have changed. They're still unemployed or they're still wealthy, or they're still bullied, or they're still at odds with their family, or they're still whatever, you name it. None of the externals have changed. But you have a people who were starving who now see a feast before them with no risk of the food ever disappearing. 
This is the abundance of life, the life that Jesus brings us. David says in Psalm 23, you set a feast before me in the presence of mine enemies. This is what he means. And so, of course, these people can give all of their things. Of course, they can sell property and donate the proceeds to a movement of abundant life because they believe this is so much louder than death. That I am going to do my part to make it louder in the experience of other people's life. Can I make life louder in the presence of death? Can I live it joyfully and exuberantly without looking over my shoulder and without wondering what people will think? That's what this 12 through 16, this community is showing us is these are people who are living this life that Peter is jailbreaked out of prison and told to go continue to proclaim. Nobody can stop him. But here's the problem. As I showed earlier here in Bluey, right? We look at this image, what do we think? That dad is dangerous. Woo, that kid's gonna fall out of that baby Bjorn or whatever that thing is. Like, I'm not gonna do that. Or maybe I'll do that for a second, but then it's too radical, it's too dangerous. I'm scared, right? It's unwise. And so what we do, is we act like that dad and we say, not right now, Bluey, not right now, bingo. And I've realized in watching the show that, that that is me, that my go-to impulse when life is offered is to shut it down in fear and anxiety. And I call it just being practical, right? No, I, I, I am choosing life, I'm being really practical. I know the way to get to life. I'm on it, dad needs to work, dad needs to do this, our house needs to be clean, that's life. Life is if I accomplish these goals that I've set up of what the good life is and how I'm gonna get there. And as long as I'm making progress, then we're living. But I bet if I asked my three kids in that moment, if we're living, they would say, dad, this is living. Let's live. And so that kind of guilt, that kind of guilt actually brings in me that conviction. It's a desire for goodness of saying, okay, I'm humbly going to, to entertain here for a second, just like Bluey's dad does. Let's try it. Let's do it. Let's embrace life. So I think that kind of that, that guilt that we experience when we feel that or when we witness, have you ever as a parent witnessed other parents doing really fun things with their kids and you go, ah, man, that looks like so much fun. That's such a good dad. That's such a good mom, right? And we kind of feel a little, a little tinge of guilt because we want to be that parent. We want to have those fun experiences. I think, I think an element of that guilt has value, okay? But it's where we think, where that guilt takes us, where we believe that guilt is gonna go, that is the thing that sours us or not, okay? A guilt heading to or facing death is condemnation. So if we have that guilt and we in that guilt go, I'm not enough, I'm just a bad dad, right? I'm just a bad mom. Or I've blown it already 
and I'm just no fun and my kids are gonna grow up saying their parents are no fun, whatever. That is a guilt heading to or facing condemnation. We're listening to the devil and his condemning voice to us and in that moment of trans, possible transformation, we're just getting pushed more and more down. But a guilt that is facing the life of Jesus is actually an agent for redemption. We see this all throughout the sermons in Acts, right? Repent and believe. Do you feel guilty? Were you part of the crowd saying, kill Jesus? Feel that guilt. Own it. Realize it's yours. But then face the beautiful, redemptive life that's offered before you. So this guilt that's promised punishment is afraid and it's crying out tears of fear. But a guilt that's promised grace and forgiveness begins to cry out tears of joy. Still crying, right? If you really get to rock bottom and things really fall apart, you're still in tears. The difference between listening to the voice of the devil and listening to the voice of Jesus is one will be tears of abject ruin. I've, I've ruined it. I am a failure, declarative identity. The other one will be tears of joy going, I am totally broken. And underneath this, God is holding me and delivering me. And I know it, but it hurts so bad. That's the difference. So our faith has everything to do with how we experience this guilt and how we deal with these problems. What we're going to do with this feeling that, oh, I'm, I'm j I can't do that because I'm so practical. Is that a guilt that is going to lead to a condemnation or a limited faith? Or are we going to realize, is it really practical? Is this what I want to do as a parent? Do I, do I really want to teach everyone this rule right now? Or do I want to teach them that life is about living in abundance at a feast? So after I watch Bluey, I often give joy and imagination and abundance a whirl, right? After I watch this show, I, I frequently will go, oh, John, you need to be more spontaneous, right? That's the cue I get from it. And then I go out and I actually try something. I try something fun. Now, what happens sometimes when you go and you have a blast and you go, okay, yeah, let's say yes to everything. I haven't seen that film yesterday, but I, but I hear it goes off the rails pretty bad, right? And I think, I think that is getting to something that all parents understand. That there, there is a point where it seems like reality kicks in. And then it's fun, but then it's exhausting. It's fun, but then something goes haywire. And the moral of the story that us as parents often learn from that, depending on our personality, is, see, it doesn't work. See, that radical way of choosing life and saying, yes, it doesn't work, the wise thing to do is to just say no and not get in trouble and keep things routine and keep things normal. But I think deep down, if we really challenge the way we're thinking about that, we could say, does it really work to choose life? How many times with our faith do we say, I could do that, but man, it wouldn't be practical. I'd be late for my meeting, so I just can't. So it must not be God's will, right? This person really needs help that's walking up to me as I'm walking down the street to get to my meeting, but I just don't have time. 
I mean, there's a story about that in the Bible, right? And it has to do with our limited thinking about what it is that our life's about. I mean, how many times when that happens do you think, oh, I could just, uh, hold on, let me phone up my friend and tell him I'm going to be 15 minutes late. Oh, hey, somebody needs my help. And I'm, uh, how many times would your friend say, yeah, sure, no problem, right? But in our limited way of thinking, in our hyper-practical, death-facing, dying way of thinking, we think, no, I need to be a man of my word. We even twist it to make it holy. I need to be a man of my word or a woman of my word, right? I need to have integrity. I can't be Jesus right now. It's not practical, right? That's called self-righteousness, and we do it all the time. And, and the early church was a church who realized what life was really about so they could discern what things to say yes and no to. There is still times to say no, and the, the early church is saying no to things. But they know what to say yes to. So can it really work to choose life? Yes. And the early church shows us that. Will it utterly and radically redefine what your life looks like? Absolutely. It will totally change why you live. It will totally change what you're after. Just like these millennial and Gen X designers of Bluey, I'm sure, I mean, you can literally see them speaking to you as parents when you're watching, even though it's for preschoolers and, and young kids, right? They are trying to rattle busy parents out of their tunnel vision career drive. They're trying to rattle us out of our time-starved lives and take a chance at choosing life and seeing how it feels and what happens and the joy that it brings. They know what we're up against. So could it, so could it be that Christianity is a story told to rattle us out of our life routines? and to try to get us to give life a try. Real life, abundant life, true life, where a feast is at the table, a selfless life. Could it be that Christianity is trying to rattle us out of the cage and just volunteer for something, to give us something where we won't get anything back? And so here's the next place we stop. We go, oh yeah, totally, totally that's what Christianity is about. Christianity is about getting me to just be a little bit better of a person. So I'm going to join up with a church. I'm going to make some, I'm going to get up involved with a ministry so that when I go to sleep at night, I can feel good about myself because I did my thing today. I helped the person today. I acted like Jesus today. So then we can actually accept that Christianity's ultimate end is to get us to do a few more things like Jesus. That's not altogether wrong, right? Christianity will get us to do a few more things like Jesus. But that ultimately is a weak and impotent vision of Christianity. And here's what's ha what will happen with that vision. You will be measuring things by the outcome still. And when you try them, once they start failing over and over again, you'll just stop. You'll say, oh, I volunteer, but nobody's really that appreciative. In fact, even the people that I help don't seem to care. It seems like anyone could do this. This isn't special, why am I doing it, right? Where can I get a little more value? 
I tried to hang out with my kids and have fun, but it just doesn't work. I'm not that fun of a person. Or when we have fun, I just always blow it. And my wife or husband comes home and they go, what are you doing? And then I realize that I, we just can't, it just doesn't work. It's not compatible with life. And so we either fuss with it, we adjust it, we change it a little, or at worst, we just throw it away, right? We just throw this whole idea away of choosing life. And we decide it's too crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm weird. People think I'm crazy. There must be something better. So usually for most of us, it just slowly kind of fades out as we change and tweak and augment. But we should ask ourselves as Christians, first of all, what happens in this story when it doesn't quite work out? Does it change the mission? Does it change the faith? Does it change the belief that Peter has? I mean, when Peter is in prison and the apostles are in prison with him, are they like, man, maybe we shouldn't do this at the temple anymore. It's getting us in a lot of trouble. Let's get out to the country. They actually don't. Eventually, they will need to go out to the country. But they go, no, the angel of the Lord came to us and the mission is this. We're just going to stay on it. We believe that God is with us and that he has a plan. So as Christians, when we're faced with the pain and the hurt and the sacrifice of living our faith, are we seeking to throw out the death in, in our life or to throw away life itself? In the example of Bluey, is playing with my kids on the chopping block when playing doesn't seem to work with my life? Or is playing, is choosing life a non-negotiable? And how I do work and how I clean my house and how much quiet time I have at night is negotiated around the vision of what life is. See, I think we know a lot about what our faith is in by what is on the chopping block for us when our time starts to get crunched and things start to break down. Are we entertaining chopping out time for prayer, time for getting in the word, time for community and meeting up with other people, discipleship relationships? Are we chopping out service? Are we chopping out church? Are we chopping out having that friend over for dinner who's not a Christian? What are we chopping out when things get tight and we get threatened with the possibility of our dreams not coming to pass? That shows us in a way where our faith is. See, the non-negotiable is the way of Jesus. And the faith is that if I live the way of Jesus, the rest of the things will get worked out in the margins. Maybe they don't, maybe your house doesn't need to be clean. That's like blasphemy for me. I mean, I'm literally speaking for myself there. But there are times and there are seasons where we need to really evaluate, what am I mentally putting on the chopping block in my life? And is it a Jesus thing? And am I trying to hold on to a me thing? <clears throat> because then what you might be realizing over time is, is the non-negotiable in my life is, is, is it life itself? Or is the non-negotiable in my life some form of death? And I'm throwing away life. 
because I can't bear to part with what I want, with what will go with me to my grave. And I think we could learn a lot from the temple priests in this story. They've made a non-negotiable out of their way of life. They can't handle change. They can't see how God could ordain such a radical change as this newfound prophet, priest, king, God, who appears by all standards to be kind of a liberal, young buck, 33-year-old rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth. And even though a lot of what he does seems good, we just can't deal with it. It doesn't look like what we want it to look like. But ultimately, they're afraid. They're afraid of Jesus. They're afraid of the people of Jesus because his way of life threatens their way of life. That's why we're afraid of God. Sometimes we run like Jonah, right? Because we're afraid that his way of life is going to threaten our way of life. But here's the thing. Jesus's life doesn't threaten anyone who is truly living. The way of Jesus does not threaten truly living because he is life abundant. So if your life is threatened by Jesus, it's only the death in you that quakes in fear. Does that make sense? It's only the part of me that desires death, that is afraid of the life of Jesus. Maybe this is like appropriate on Halloween. All around us is painted the imagery of death. Perhaps Halloween in some ways is, is that way to make us more familiar with it. I actually think there's something about Halloween that's important culturally for us to face death and deal with it. But this loudness of death from Halloween is a perfect example of how death creates fear in us. What, what is Halloween about? It's about scaring you, right? And what do we get scared with? Images of death. Because we're afraid of dying. That's what Halloween is. But these are people who live in the way of Jesus who are completely unfazed by death. I mean, how incredibly desirable is that? These are people so certain of the eternal life that even when flogged, they view it as a sign of honor. That when thrown in prison, no sooner are they freed than they go back and do the same thing that got them in there in the first place. Because they believe in the mission and the life. And they don't want to hold it back from any of us. So think about what things stir up resistance in you and ask yourself, does my body heat up and my blood boil because the way of Jesus is being threatened in me? or because my way is being threatened and I need to be bending or breaking or doubling down on the way of Jesus. That gets us to kind of the wrapping up here. I want us to ask this central question. What do we do when the voices and forces of death seem to get louder? What's, what's happening in this story in Acts is that death is getting louder and louder and louder. It's closer and closer. It's doing things that are making indelible marks, scars. Very soon, one of the followers of Jesus is going to be stoned. 
Death is going to come for this community. It's getting loud. It's ringing in their ears. But they're not listening to that death culture. It might be that there's attacks on our character or attacks on our culture, but those things don't phase these people. And so what should we do when death and the energy of the world, the flesh or the devil, sin and its voice become louder and louder and louder? Should we double down? Should we bend? Should we break to it? I mean, when is it too much? All of us in our personality have a tendency towards certain things. We either get real rigid, we go, not with my Jesus, right? Or we go, ah, let's find a middle ground. I'm gonna bend around a little bit. I think I can be your friend and Jesus's friend too. Let's just walk together, right? Or we break and we go, man, you're right. This Jesus thing is just not adding up. The church just isn't, I'm gonna do your thing, right? Do we double down, do we bend, or do we break? Those are actually personality traits. I'm not here to attack any of those. There is a time for doubling down. There is a time for bending. And there is a time for breaking. The question is, what or who do we double down on? What do we double down on? I've seen people double down on political ideology. I've seen people double down on them and their family. I've seen people double down on um, a career choice. I've seen people double down on a place to live. And I've said, are you doubling down on the way of Jesus? Or are you doubling down on your dreams? Which one are you choosing? Or what or who do we bend for? Do we bend to accommodate sin in our life? Do we bend to accommodate death and give it a guest room, as we've talked about? Or do we bend because the loudest voice for us, the one we bend to, is Jesus? And we're saying, you got me. Oh, you're starting to bend to me. It hurts. It's like a bad, it's like a stretch, right? Feel it the next day. Jesus, you're bending me. What or who breaks me? Do bullies break me? Do misfortune break me? Does the discipline of loving and leading and the refining, consuming fire of the Holy Spirit break me? What breaks me? When we're broken in life, Jesus is waiting there to jump in and care for our wounds. Brokenness is a wonderful place for a Christian to be. It's a place where God can do real work. But if we're broken at the forces of death and we succumb to them, and in order to be whole again, we say, I just give up. I, I wave the white flag of surrender to sin. It's just easier to sin. I'm just gonna do it and keep it a secret. What do we begin to do? We break towards sin. We, get to, we begin to bend towards sin in our lives and our communities. Eventually, we might get to a place where we actually find we're doubling down on sin like Judas amidst the disciples because of all of the agreements that we've made along the way. But we see that when the disciples, when death grows louder, they do not give up on pursuing life. And what happens? God sends an angel to save them. He sends a literal angel to come and rescue them. 
Angels are messengers of God in the Bible. And they have particular messages for us. So when an angel comes to save us, there is something that God is trying to say to us. And angels do still come, and they do still save, and they do still give messages. <clears throat> when the temple priests are shouting red hot in the faces of the apostles, when death is whipping them across their backs, what happens? Their verbal defense of faith stays consistent. It's pinned on the gospel storyline and it doesn't waver. Their argument doesn't waver. They don't change facts, stories, anything. They stick with Jesus and they declare he's not a fairy tale, he's real. The life is real. And then what happens is sin is declared for what it really is, powerless, because sin is darkness and it's powerless against light. Barclay writes this when he's talking about the apostles and what they do in the story. He says, they're men of courage, they're men of principle, and they had a clear idea of their function as witnesses. And this really got me. A witness is a man who speaks from firsthand knowledge. He knows from personal experience that what he says is true and it is impossible to stop a man like that because it is impossible to stop the truth. I wanted to ask a question if one of the kids is able to answer this and I'm not putting you on the spot. What, what school do you go to? You go to Winter Haven. What if, I just, what if somebody just got in there and go, you don't go to Winter Haven, tell me where you go. What would you say? I go to Winter Haven. I know it because I've seen it. Because I have a teacher there. I go to Winter Haven. You see how the power of sin is like that person shouting in your face. It's powerless against something you know. Does that make sense? The disciples know Jesus in the same way that you know what school you go to. It's that clear. It's that real to them. It's actually really simple when we think about it. That's reality. And you can't convince somebody, no matter what you do to them, that reality is not real when they've experienced it and they know it. I'm going to tell a short story and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, Megan, I wish she was here, told me a story this week. Um, she had quite a week. And one of the things that happened was that uh, she got a, a notice from one of her coworkers that, hey, there's like some people out under your car at the rescue mission, just kind of like right there on Halsey and 120th-ish, and or 100th. And they go, there, there's some people out there like on your car, do you know what's going on? And she's like, no. She's like, they're underneath your car. And so she, she goes out and comes to find out the people at that point had left. And this woman comes up to her and goes, man, yeah, there was these people, they were out. I think they were trying to like take your catalytic converter or something out of the bottom of your car. She goes, so I just got up right up there with my camera and I just started filming all of them and I filmed their license plate and I just, I didn't budge. And I thought, man, I thought they could hurt me, but I got the love of Jesus in me. They ain't going to touch me. And she then, then the police officer shows up and she's telling him this whole story. And he goes, man, 
she, she had a, she had a car and on the side of it was her salon business. Right. And he goes, woman, you got the wrong job. Come join the forces. Like you've got what it takes. You can face fear. And Megan goes, it was like an angel. She was my angel. She, she came and she swooped in and she saved my car, she saved this. And then she goes, she goes oh yeah, I could, I could go identify them in a lineup. She goes down there, super psyched to get down and identify them all in the lineup. She ends, they end up finding them. And she goes, no, I want more than anything for them to be found because I've been at rock bottom and I know that you need something like this to shake you up. So I'm doing a good thing by going and serving justice. And I go, what a story of an angel. Now, I'm not saying here that I know whether this person was sent down to the earth by God or not. What I'm saying is this is a messenger of the way of Jesus, angelically appearing. Megan has no idea who she is. Comes and swoops in to save and deliver. Not just Megan, that's like a car, you can fix that. Possibly to deliver these people who need to hit rock bottom and see redemption and see that somebody actually gets what that's like and they're convicting them not to condemn them, but to redeem them. Isn't that a powerful story of an angelic messenger? And it's because the basis of her witness is Jesus. Yisam Macaulay says, do we make Jesus the star of our show or just the solution to our problems? See, the solution to our problems is a Jesus that serves us when we need him. But the star of the show means our whole life is in orbit around the star. Everything's coordinated for the star to shine, for people to talk about the star of the show. Who do you talk about when you watch a movie? You talk about your favorite actor. You talk about the star. Our job in the play or the movie of this life is to orbit around and make great the celebrity nature of Jesus, that he would be known, that he would be talked about, that his way would be triumphant. And we do that by realizing that this life is not all there is. It's the first step to eternal life. Our life is a beginning, not a beginning, middle, and end. Even when we hit midlife, like Noah and I are going, okay, I'm in the middle, like... Looking around, not what I imagined, maybe, right? I'm in the middle, I've only got, the clock is ticking. That whole paradigm is wrong. We're just in the first step of eternal life. And it's all about proclaiming Jesus. I've got more to talk about, but I won't today. Um, this is all over the talking of Jesus, all over his stories, how he cares for us, how he is just seeking for our hearts and he wants us to double down on his way. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for this community. We thank you for your word. We thank you. We, we pray that, that your message here in Acts 5 would find a home in our hearts and uh, that it would speak to us. God, we pray that it would change us and that we would be excited about it and what you're doing in our lives. God, that we would see these tweaks and these changes and these breakdowns and these places where we're bending, 
these places where we can't help but double down anymore, all as being places where we're caving to and representing and witnessing the way of Jesus and not the way of Ellen or Noah or Riley or Ron. We're just, we're giving up to Jesus in our life and we want him to be more known. I pray that for this community and all listening. In Jesus' name, amen.